There we go. All right, let's go ahead and get started, everybody. Uh, we'll be in Titus chapter 2 this morning, so go ahead and turn there. Titus chapter 2, and I'm, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us here. I don't know if we'll actually have time to go through the entire chapter this morning. We might only make it to verse 10, but um, we might cross over into it just a little bit. I don't know. We'll see how, how it goes here. Uh, we'll see how long it takes to get through these first 10 verses. Um, just while you're turning there, let me just remind you a little bit about the context of where we are here in Titus. Um, in chapter 1, you may remember after Paul finished introducing himself, um, he was emphasizing the importance of understanding how the church operates. And so throughout chapter 1, he was addressing sort of elders and anti-elders. And we'll talk more about exactly why he was doing that and how that relates to our passage in just a second. But before I read our text for today, let me open us in a brief word of prayer, and we will get rolling here in the text. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for another Sunday, another day to be in your word. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would send your spirit and that you would work in our hearts and in our minds so that we would understand what it is that you have to say to us here. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in Titus chapter 2, and I'll go ahead and read the whole chapter. But like I said, I don't think we'll get all the way through it this morning. We'll save some of it for next week. So Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But as for you, speak what accords with sound doctrine, that elders should be sober, serious, and wise, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Likewise, that elder women should be reverent in conduct, not doing evil, nor given to much wine, but teachers of good, so that they might advise the younger women to be lovers of their husbands and lovers of their children, wise, holy, keepers of the home, and good, submitting to their own husbands, so that the word of God might not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the younger men to be wise concerning all things, by presenting yourself as an example of good works, and in the teaching, soundness, seriousness, and a sound word which cannot be condemned, so that one from the opposition may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves should submit to their own masters in all things, by presenting themselves well, not speaking against them, nor stealing, but presenting every good faith, so that they might adorn the teaching of God our Savior in all things. For the saving grace of God has been manifest to all men, teaching us so that turning away from godlessness and from worldly desires, we may live wisely and righteously and godly in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the revealing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and so that he might purify for himself a special people, 
zealous for good works. Speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. As I mentioned a minute ago, in chapter 1 of Titus, Paul is very concerned with church officers. And you can understand why that was the case. We've talked about this a number of times. What Paul is doing is he is setting up the church now toward the end of his ministry to operate without the apostles. Okay? Now, it's not like the apostles were running around and being dictators everywhere. But the idea here is that when the apostles are gone, now the church is going to have to work with just the written word of God, right? just the scriptures. They won't have the apostles bringing them the revelation of God or writing new epistles or those sorts of things. So now the church is going to need to operate by itself, and it's going to need uh, church officers to do that. And so Paul then spends the first half of chapter 1 focusing on elders, their qualities, the nature of the position, those sorts of things. And then last week we saw Paul was dealing very specifically with anti-elders or the false teachers and saying how you identify them, some of the things that these false teachers were promoting And we'll see how some of those doctrines have infiltrated in the life of the congregation here this morning in uh, the congregation that Paul's writing to. But after treating elders and anti-elders in chapter 1, now we come to chapter 2 this morning. And it's in chapter 2 that Paul is turning his attention. He's turning his attention from officers, and he's now wanting to focus more carefully on the congregation itself. And you can see that throughout chapter 2, at least the first 10 verses here, Paul is picking out the major kinds of people that are in this congregation. You can see he's talking about elder men, and then he's talking about older women, then he's talking about younger women, and then younger men, and finally he's talking about slaves. And so as he goes through each of these positions, what he's doing is he wants to explain how the congregation is to behave toward one another. What are the responsibilities that the congregants have? So, if you will, chapter 1 is about officers. Chapter 2 here is about the church, the the congregation members. Um, And there's a lot of overlap, uh, which you'll see as we get into it here. A lot of overlap. But essentially what Paul is doing here in chapter 2 is in the first 10 verses, he's listing out all of the responsibilities of the congregation. And then when we get to verse 11 and following to the end of the chapter there, he's giving the reason. That is, here's all the things that you guys are supposed to do. And then in verse 11, here's why are you supposed to do these things? Why do these things matter? And so you can really think about the chapter as breaking down into the what and the why. And we might not get to the why before we're done this morning. We might get there. We'll see. But we'll definitely talk about it more in depth next week. Um, In any case, let's get to the what. Let's talk about these different uh, responsibilities, these different duties that Paul is prescribing to each of the different members of the congregation. And uh, you can see here, beginning with verse 2, Paul is now beginning to teach Titus. He's emphasizing to Titus, here's what the older men in the congregation need to be doing. Now, a couple of things to note here. First off, note, everything that Paul is going to say to each of these groups of people technically applies to all of the groups. Okay? 
Because when Paul is saying, for example, to the older women in verse 3, that they need to be teaching good things. Well, obviously that technically applies to everybody. It's not that the older women teach good things and the older men can teach bad things. Right? No, we don't, we don't say that. These are applying to everybody. But note that as we work our way through these, what Paul is doing is he is emphasizing the particular things that are either most important for certain groups of people or things that certain groups of people are less likely to do by nature because of their unique temptations or their unique situations or their unique temperaments. Okay? So note that as we work our way through these. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we go through it. But firstly then, with the older men, verse 2, he says that older men need to be sober, serious, and wise, or self-controlled, depending on how you take that word there. Now, when he talks about older men there in verse 2, the Greek word for the older man there is different than the word in chapter 1 when he's talking about the elder. Okay, So note here, in chapter 1, when he says the elder... That's a different word, because that's talking about the office. Whereas here, in chapter 2, Paul's talking about just an older person in a congregation, right? An older, mature gentleman. That's the idea here. So, those kind of people, he says, they need to be sober and serious and wise. Why? Because they represent wisdom, right? They represent the, the people who have life experience, who have sat under the teaching of God's word for a longer period of time. And they are the people that manifest these kinds of of attributes. And he says that they are to be sound in the faith and in love and in perseverance. Did you have a question, Robert? Yeah, go ahead. Is is the word here presbyteroi or is there a third word? This word is presbutos. Yeah, but it's the same root, but a different word. Yes. So the the word for the office of elder is presbuteros. This one is presbutos. So you can hear that it sounds similar, but it's not the identical word. Yep. This is the one that um, other biblical authors like Peter will use this to talk about older people too. Whereas presbuteros is the office of elder. Yep. That's a good question. Okay, so... So these older gentlemen are to be, and I want to emphasize the last part of verse 2 here. They are to be sound in the faith, in love, and in perseverance or steadfastness. And here Paul is highlighting that these older gentlemen in a congregation, their unique task is to be sort of the bedrock of the rest of everybody else. Not, not, not just because of their age, but because their age is supposed to signify the fact that they have a great deal of spiritual wisdom and experience to impart. And because of this, then, they'll be sound in the faith. And by faith here, Paul's not just talking about you know, the content or the, the theology, but here he's talking about that older person's personal trust in Christ. The fact that that because of this wealth of experience and seeing how God has worked throughout their lives and so on, that they would have a firm grasp of faith in Christ. And not only that they would have this kind of personal characteristic of faith in Christ, but secondly, that they would have love. Sound in the faith and sound in love. And that is now a step forward. Because while Paul is saying... 
that the elder gentlemen need to have personal faith and personal godliness. Now with the second qualification of love, the personal holiness and the personal devotion is moving out into the sphere of other people. So the elder, not this elder person, not only needs to be personally faithful, but publicly faithful. That his faith in Christ is manifesting itself. It's bearing fruit in the love of other people and in service of other people. And then, not only personal and public, but thirdly here, we have soundness in steadfastness. Or soundness in perseverance. And that third category means that this personal and this public demonstration of the love of Christ is not something that waffles. It's not something that's changing. It's not something that is here one day and gone the next. It's something that's constant, continuing, so that the people who are in this position are such that they can be counted on. Because again, the elder gentlemen here that Paul is talking about, they are to be the bedrock of the congregation. They're the people you can depend on. You don't want them to be waffling in their foundation. And so that's the ideal here that Paul is lifting up. Now, he's not saying then that every single day you're on a spiritual high. Okay? But what he is saying is that, generally speaking, characteristic of the life of the older member of the congregation is steadfastness. Steadfastness in the faith. In faith and love and perseverance. Okay, so that's for the older men. Now here's for the older women, he says, verse 3. Likewise, older women should be reverent in conduct, not doers of evil, nor given to much wine, but teachers of good. And we'll come to verse 4 then in just a second. Now, one of the things we see here as we're looking at Paul's injunctions to the older women is that these the, the, the particular strengths and weaknesses that he's highlighting here were very, very important for first century women. Okay? Number one, we come here to the first one, which is that they are to be reverent in conduct. Here he's saying that older women who also, just like the older men, represent a kind of wisdom gained throughout life experience, he's saying that they are to be reverent in their behavior. And what's interesting is that the word there for reverent uh, actually is related to the Greek word for priest, which is kind of interesting. They are to be priestly in their conduct. Not that they are priests, okay? but what they are is they're to be conducting themselves in a godly manner. And that's why the translations take it there as something like reverent. Right? That they are to, just as the priest was to enter into the holy sanctuary with great reverence and respect for his position and for where he, the, the situation that he was placed in, so older women are to behave that way too. That they are to be reverent in all their behavior and where God has placed them. So they're not to be loud and disrespectful They're not to be people where when you look at them, you say, wow, what a gossip. Because gossiping is not reverent. They're not to be people who are known for rebelliousness, treating their husbands with contempt. No, this is a holy behavior that they are called to. A holy behavior, a priestly behavior 
kind of. So they're to be reverent in their conduct, not doers of evil. And then this is an interesting one right here next. He says, not given to much wine. Not given to much wine. Now, Paul here is speaking about a very real situation that was uh, unfortunately very common in the ancient world. You can imagine the place that women were in the ancient world in, in Paul's day, in this first century, was in the home. Right? They, they, were, they really weren't such things as business women or anything. They were in the home, and they were there all day caring for the kids, caring for the house, preparing meals, managing the household servants, those sorts of things. And for women that were in the home 24-7, year after year, they had act, full access to everything in the house, including the cabinets. And so you can imagine one of the issues that was going on, and this is not, I'm not making this up, this is actually historically documented, is that it was a common problem for wives to be getting drunk on a daily basis at home because they had access to everything and their husbands weren't there to stop them. And so that's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. Okay, He's not saying drinking wine is a sin. What he's trying to say is the women in this day, they were called to a task. And they need to be faithful in their task. And what they were doing was they were not being faithful because they were too busy indulging themselves. And you can imagine that in our own day and age, maybe getting drunk at home when the husband's not home is a, something that happens. But I, we could probably fill in the blank here with a number of different things today, couldn't we? Things that, that we might be tempted to indulge ourselves with that take away our time so that we can't be productive in the things that God has called us to do. If you look at studies, for example, which I've, I'm not going to say that I spend a lot of time doing this, but I have read briefly some studies of different things that a major issue for people today is social media. All right, now, you've heard this spiel a thousand times. Social media is, you know, it's a drug. It's kind of you know, it causes you to, to really just want to come back to it over and over and over again. Um, and so it can kind of sound like a broken record to talk about it, but it is the truth. Scientific studies have shown every time we pick up our phone and scroll through Facebook, we get an influx of dopamine in the brain that causes us to want more. And so, you know, maybe if Paul were writing this today, he would say, don't be given to social media. Or don't be given to something else. I don't know what he would put there. But you see, the principle is what we're after here, not the, the actual circumstance that Paul's highlighting. He's highlighting a principle, and the principle is that one of the temptations for this type of person is to waste time. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Be faithful in what you are called to do. And so after highlighting then what they're not supposed to do, now he transitions to what they are supposed to do. What are the older women supposed to do? They're supposed to be teachers of good. And how do they do that? So that they can advise or they can give, give wisdom or teach discipline to the younger women so that they might love their husbands and love their children. So there's the antithesis. The idea is these women are so given to wine that they're not loving. They're not loving their husbands. They're not loving their children. The house is in chaos because they're selfishly indulging themselves. So don't do that, Paul says. 
What we need to do is to teach the younger women how to do these things rightly and do these things rightly ourselves. This kind of uh, connects to what we were talking about in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, you remember, the false teachers were teaching a lot of bad stuff. But among the various bad things that they were teaching, one of the things that they were saying is that they were overturning entire households because they were teaching that marriage was inordinate. That is, that you don't need marriage. They were trying to get rid of it. And so they were causing entire households to fall apart because they were teaching women, yeah, you don't need to love your husbands. You can leave them. Man, you don't need to love your wives. You can have as many wives and concubines as you want to. You don't need the family. You don't need children. Just don't worry about it. Just do what you want. That's what they were teaching. And so here, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Older women, you know what's right. Teach these younger women the right way. Don't let these false teachers get in their heads. Teach them to love their husbands. Teach them to love their children. And further, verse 5, teach them to be wise or self-controlled, holy, and keepers of the home, and good. There's the keepers of the home aspect here. A common issue in the first century, as we just said, was Wives indulging themselves at home and their house being in chaos. Paul says, no, don't do that. Be good keepers of the home. Do what God has called you to do in the sphere that he has called you to do it. And then finally there, verse 5, submitting to your own husbands so that the word of God might not be blasphemed. We don't have time to go on a big spiel about submission, but you've heard it a number of times from myself. You hear it from Joey. You've heard it from, you know, Adam, you hear it from Robert, you hear it from all of us. The importance of that everywhere in Scripture we see this principle of the wives submitting to the authority of the husbands in love. It's not it's not very uh, very pleasant to talk about in our current culture, in our current day and age. Um, I feel bad that I feel uncomfortable even saying it. Even in a church like this, I feel uncomfortable saying it because it's so culturally counter. But we need to, because the Bible says it. And, uh, yeah, I won't go into it anymore, but we might talk about it later in 2 Timothy when it comes up again. But notice here at the end of verse 5, Paul lays out all of this stuff that these older women are to teach the younger women. And notice here he's giving a purpose at the end of verse 5. You see this purpose, so that the word of God might not be blasphemed. There is a kind of general purpose aside from the purpose that he'll give later in verse 11 for why Christians need to be concerned about the things that Paul's talking about. Because let's say, for example, in the first century, you're in Crete, you go to a church, and you are claiming to believe in Jesus Christ. Your neighbors know about it. And then what's happening is that After you leave church, you come back home on Monday and you're getting drunk six times a week at home. Your house is in disarray. You're not loving your children. You're not loving your husband so on, whatever. What is that going to do in the eyes of the watching world? Are they going to look upon Christians and say, wow, look at them. They're so much different than we are. I wonder what it would be like to be one of them. I wonder what their savior is like. 
No, Paul here is talking about the fact that unbelievers will look on sinful believers and say, wow, (laughs) the word of God must not be true. Christ must not have done anything in their heart. Christ probably doesn't even exist because they're just not living the way they should be. By their own standards, they're not living. Now again, there's a certain sense in which the world is always going to look on us and call us hypocrites and always going to look on us with hate because Christ said that would happen. So there is a good sense in which the world looks on us and hates us. But there's also a sense that Paul is talking about here, and that is a sense in which we are responsible to make sure that we are shining the beacons of Christ to the world. That we are people who are manifesting Christ as his image. In fact, that's our job as the image of God, isn't it? To reflect God to the world. And that's the idea that Paul's talking about here. So this is, if you will, kind of a secondary grounds for everything that he's saying. The reason why Christians should live like Christians, the reason why we should care about the way that Paul is telling us to live here, is because we want to bear witness to what Christ has done in us by showing what Christ is doing through us. And that is so, so important for Paul. In fact, he's going to say that exact same thing again after he talks now about the younger men. Notice what he says about the younger men. Verse 6. Likewise, exhort the younger men to be wise or to be disciplined concerning all things. Young men need this, by the way. (laughs) You all know about this. This is very pertinent to young men. Encourage them to be self-disciplined concerning all things. By presenting yourself as an example of good works. Now, Paul here, you can see, he's sort of highlighting Titus now. He's saying, Titus, be an example for the young men. But here, commentators will point out, and I think they're right about this, that when Paul is singling out Titus, what he's doing is he's singling out Titus because Titus is one of the older men being described in verse 2. So really, the injunction to Titus is actually an injunction to the older men in the congregation in general. And so if that's the case, then what Paul is doing is he's doing the same thing that he was doing with the older and the younger women. The older women are to be in a kind of mentoring relationship with the younger women, teaching them, like being a good example and teaching them. Well, it's the same thing with the older men. The older men are to be in a mentoring relationship with the younger men. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Present yourselves as an example of good works, and in the teaching, soundness, seriousness, and a sound word which cannot be condemned. And then here's the reason. Why should the older men be concerned about this? Why should Titus especially be concerned about being a good example and teaching the young men how to live? So that one from the opposition might be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about us. Same reason he gave in verse 5. Why should we care about how we live? Because we should care about how the world sees us. If they hate us for Christ's sake, praise God. But if they hate us because we're living sinful lives, because we're actually being genuine hypocrites, well, there's no praise to God there. In fact, in that case, we're causing unbelievers to blaspheme the word of God. So Paul is emphasizing that important aspect here. Now in verse 9, Paul addresses the slaves. And he tells them to be submissive to their own masters in all things. 
and to present themselves well, not to speak against them, nor to steal, but rather to present every good faith. Why? Why should the slaves behave in this way? So that they might adorn the teaching of our Savior God in all things. Here again, Paul ends this third category of people in the church by saying, Why should you live like this, slaves? So that people see the power of God. So that God's glory is put on display. And so that the teaching of God might be adorned by your good works. That's what Paul's emphasizing here. So you can see, he says it three times in different ways. Why should we live the way Paul is saying we should live? Because we want to bear the fruit of the gospel and give all the glory to God so that when people see our good works, they glorify our Father in heaven. That's Paul's message here. But he's not done. And we're going to cross over into verse 11 for just one second and highlight the main reason why we should be doing these things. Why should we as a church, whether we are an old man, a young man, an old woman, or a younger woman, or a slave, why should we be seeking to live the way that God has prescribed here? Verse 11, here's the primary reason. Secondary reason is the eyes of the watching world. But the primary reason is this, verse 11. For, you see four in your Bible there? Go ahead, like circle that and highlight it and do everything you want to do with that word. Because that word is a huge important word when you're reading the Bible. It tells you a reason. It tells you a reason. Here's the reason you do all these things. For, the saving grace of God has appeared to all men. And we're going to dive very, very deep into this passage and what Paul is saying next week, verses 11 through 15. But you can see in verse 14 there, as Paul starts bringing up Christ and how he gave himself for us and so on, that the grace that Paul has in view there, that saving grace of God, is Christ. And so what Paul is going to do in verses 11 and 15 is he's going to say, why should we live this way? because of the gospel. It's because of what Christ has done for us, both in history and within our hearts. Because Christ has come in the flesh as the God-man, died for us, and he has made us, we're told in verse 14, he has purified us so that we would be for him a special people, zealous for good works. So you see, this whole chapter is about sanctification. This whole chapter is about how we live as God's people in the light of the gospel. So because God has already sent Christ, because God has already saved us, therefore, whatever sphere of life that we are in, whatever we are called to, whatever class of people that we fall into in chapter 2, we are to do our best to follow the injunctions that God has prescribed Not in order to be saved, but because we are already saved by the work of Christ. You see, there's Paul's primary reason. There is Paul's reason for why we should do what he's telling us to do. Now, we'll look more carefully at that reason um, next week. Because there is just so much stuff packed in verses 11 through 15 that I'm really excited to get into. And we'll connect that more with the the text for today uh, when we get there.
All right, any, uh, any quick questions before we wrap it up this morning? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word once more, and we thank you for um, all of these uh, all these sanctifying commands that we find in chapter 2. Lord, it can seem at times like it's all uh, a high bar to try to jump over. And Lord, we know we can't do it. Uh, that's why we need you. And so Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts uh, the desire to serve you in whatever sphere, whatever calling that you have put us in. And we pray, Lord, that we would always do it with the gospel in view. We would do it with Christ in view. And we pray, Lord, now that you would fill our hearts with joy as we enter into your sanctuary today to worship you. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.